The late Gilda Radner once said, I've learned the hard way that some poems don't rhyme and some stories don't have a clear beginning, middle, and end. Life is about not knowing, having to change, taking the moment and making the best of it without knowing what's going to happen next. Well, for my guest today on the program, that quote is right on the nose. His story in the music industry is the kind of story you don't typically hear. It has to do with making it, not making it the way you thought you made it, and then wondering what you've been making all this time you've been trying to make it. Confused? Well, don't worry about it if you are. I'm speaking cryptically. How can you possibly know what I'm talking about? Well, you're about to. So listen, do what you do when you listen to podcasts. Keep cleaning the house, keep riding your bike, keep driving your car, and check out this story because it's a really interesting one. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. Strange are the stories I hear Of a faraway planet that's frozen in fear And where still there is hatred and war Well, I guess they've forgotten what living is for But if we could reach them, so much we could teach them From lessons we learn here on Earth If they watch everything we do How we're all free and kind and true Here in our paradise blue That is the music of my guest today on the program, Stephen Crystal. Let me tell you a little bit about Stephen Crystal. All right, so the Seattle-based singer-songwriter Stephen Crystal has had quite a career. Well, to be more specific, he's had a couple of careers, but today we're going to talk about the musical one. I'll leave it to him to tell you the particulars of his life, but a little background is important before we get to the chat. The Georgia-born Crystal's adventure with music and the music industry found him with incredible highs, like getting a phone call from Harry Belafonte about recording one of his songs, to some pretty tough lows that he'll explain. But here's the thing you have to know about those lows. What made them so hard was that they came disguised as highs. In other words, it looked like smooth sailing, but then the ship capsized. The emotional whiplash an artist goes through was detailed perfectly in our chat with actor Michael Charles Roman a few months back when he was talking about booking a sitcom only to have his and everyone else's part recast. Well, this is the music version of that story, and it's a series of sucker punches. But this chat is about more than that. It's about self-belief, self-preservation, and never putting art on the back burner for good. I love the story you're about to hear because it demonstrates the power of creativity and the beauty of art. Stephen Crystal is a fabulous singer-songwriter whose compositions summon everyone from Jackson Brown to James Taylor. Along the way, he wrote songs for Starship, Little River Band, and Harry Belafonte, and for good reason. His songwriting precision and lyrical agility are effortless skills that should have made him millions and nearly did. Now, the stories that Stephen's going to tell us are pretty agonizing because they're so close to getting him what he wanted. But don't worry about Stephen. Remember how I told you he had another career? Well, he did, and he does, and he's doing great. He's a business strategy consultant, a career coach, 
and an executive whose previous business books have been published in 11 languages. His latest book, No Boss, is awesome, and it's one that you should read. It's an unorthodox guide to self-employment written after more than three decades of successfully sustaining independent work. It's a terrific read. Stephen also writes about solutions to environmental issues for leading media outlets focused on sustainable business practices. Yeah, he's busy, but not too busy to take some time to appear on the podcast. So you're going to love this conversation, by the way. It's so interesting. It's a side of the music business that we don't typically hear about or cover, but you need to hear it. It's really something else. All right, let's get right to it. Here's me and Stephen Crystal having a conversation right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. middle-class kind of struggling family with um you know jewish parents who put a premium on education because neither one of them actually my father never finished college and um you know it was important so i never took music seriously at the time as a way to have a career um but when i was 13 and my best friend at the time mike richardson put a guitar in my hands and taught me how to play what i say from ray charles i thought oh this is interesting. Why are my neurons firing like this? So um, that became a little bit of an obsession. And um, turned out I wasn't much of a guitar player, but I could sing. I was always the I was always the you know the front guy in the band with the guitar hanging around his neck as a prop that he could almost play. But it was really all about you know um, doing better and being financially secure and having a quote real career mm. and not trust not trusting that music could provide one so i never really took it seriously until well it would have been um my 20s when i was already ensconced in a business career and really uh, looking pretty upwardly mobile at that point and there was a woman who worked in the company that i worked for who put a note on the bulletin board that she was selling a used uh, Martin guitar, and I didn't think anyone in the office even knew what a Martin guitar was. Um, I met her. Turned out she was a lovely singer and was married to a brilliant singer-songwriter. And they asked me to come over to their apartment. We ended up forming a band, and um, I had just accepted a job to move to San Francisco. And they presented me with a going-away present, which was a recording session in one of Chicago's better studios. And we recorded, you know, some original stuff and I just really got the bug at that point. But I was on my trajectory. So mm. you know, I kind of kind of let it go. Went on and took the job in San Francisco. And of course we were two thousand miles apart at that point. So we weren't a band. And six months later they followed me to San Francisco. Mm. So that's how we ended up um, in Marin County making an EP and um, 
starting to pitch to labels. And through all that, of course, I was working 10, 12 hour days in an advertising agency wearing a suit. So it was a, you know, a bit of a dual existence for quite a while there. Were they thinking you could, they could lure you out of your day job? Is that, the, I mean, they came all the way out to San Francisco. Um, were they, did they have a, a devilish plan to talk you out of working? Completely. Um, yeah. They, uh, neither of them really had careers. They were frighteningly intelligent, um, you know, but they didn't have college degrees and they really didn't have careers. And, you know, that's, um, that's what they wanted to do. And um, they sucked me in pretty well. It was a really special time, but it was in, it was intense. I mean, I didn't have a family at that point. I could work 10, 12 hours a day and still have time to rehearse at night and uh, not sleep very much. And, uh, you know, well, it, it worked that, out for a while. That sounds like a man in his 20s. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that, isn't that what we were supposed to be doing? What were you yeah. doing in your 20s? Yeah, I, burning everything at both ends. Exactly. You know, I mean, yeah. you're telling me that story and in my brain, I'm going, oh, God, that sounds tiring. Uh, but it's not, you know, because no. you're getting so much energy from both things. And I actually loved my work at the time. I mean, it was, uh, you know, it's it's easy to make fun of the advertising business and I do it all the time. But the truth is, in, in that period, um, it was wildly creative. Uh, if I couldn't be a writer or art director myself, I could be around them all day. We could be flinging ideas at each other and, you know, feeding off each other's energy. And it was uh, really different than working in a bank like I did in college, you know. Yeah. Um, and so and there was music involved in commercials. And, um, you know, so I just said, well, I can't be in it. I'll be around it. Um, and then the band kind of got me in it. I had at the time I had a client in L.A. And so I was down there every week. And after the client meeting, I would go over to a record label, and, you know, pitch a demo. Um, my, they thought I was the band's lawyer because the way I was dressed. <laughs> but um, yeah, <laughs> we we kept getting the the same feedback, which was, you know, the band's good. It's not great. It's not really doing anything that the Eagles and Fleetwood Mac aren't already doing. Um, but who's writing the songs? Those are kind of interesting. And I was writing some of those songs. And so it took it took us a while to sort of acknowledge that, um, you know, we probably weren't going to happen uh, the way we thought we were going to happen. And that it was a time to step back and say, hey, if some other artists want to record this stuff, you know, maybe that's okay. Um, in the meantime, I'm still very focused on my career because uh, you know, I was determined to not have to have the same kind of financial struggles that my parents had. And, um, you know, so I just continued to, to kind of do the parallel path. And um, what years are we talking? What year did the band, were the, the band being active in San Francisco, we're talking like late 80s? No, way before that. Oh. I'm going to really date myself now. No, no. Um, I almost remember when I was your age, and um, I think um, we would be talking about uh, 75 through 79. Okay. And so, yeah, and, so that, that Laurel Canyon sound was sort oh, of yeah. going it was up. Every, 
Right. Well, it was Laurel Canyon. And for us, it was really our singer songwriter heroes. It was Paul Simon. It was Jackson Brown. And on guitar, it was James Taylor. Um, and um, those were the influences that I was kind of draped in um, mm -hmm. when I arrived in LA in 1982. But in the late 70s, um, you're a Bay Area guy, right? Yeah. Yeah. You might remember there was a station in Marin County called KTIM. Yeah, I'm from Marin County, and I totally remember that station, San Rafael. And they would, uh, yeah. and they did a, they, they used to have a show um, where they would showcase local artists, and they 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 put our EP in rotation for a while. And um, you know, we had made a record up at Sonoma Recording, and we had John McPhee from the Doobies on pedal steel, and we had Scott Tunis on bass, who went on to be Frank Zappa's bass player. So you know, he was a real musician. We were not real musicians. Um, I still couldn't really read and write music, and um, but you know it was it was an okay record, and um, you know I think that um, people saw some songwriting talent in there. So that was that. Um, but I probably pitched that. Uh, I probably pitched demos to you know twenty or thirty labels before sort of resigning ourselves to the fact that um, you know. It, we weren't going to be a thing. And uh, in a way, it was a blessing because at the time, being hopelessly naive about the music business, I really didn't know what a terrible business it was. But at least in those days, it was a business where there seemed like there was an order to it or like you make a demo, you pitch it to a label, you wait and things happen. Now I wouldn't know what to do. Now it just seems like, you no, know, it's, uh, I'd be lost in it. Yeah. Uh, and I'm actually thankful not to have to be navigating that right now. Um, yeah. You know, my relationship to music has changed so radically since then. Um, you know, it's um, it's never been such a wonderful relationship as it is now. Um, but, you know, it, like so many people that land in L.A., you know, thinking that they're going to be, um, you know, one of the top 10 songwriters in town. You know, it's a very humbling experience. And sometimes it seems for all the wrong reasons. You know, it's easy to sound sour grapes and say, well, I was really talented. You know, I just never got the break and I really worked hard and all that. But the truth is, uh, I didn't know anybody like a lot of people who get there. And then when you finally start knowing people, it's like, um, you know, hey, man, when the session's over at midnight, hang out and we'll do some coke and chill out. You know, I just wasn't into that scene. And so I wasn't networking. I wasn't building those kinds of relationships. But the one thing that was really cool was when I hit L.A. in 82, it was to go back to school full time and study music at a place called the Grove School of Music. I think at the time it was still called the Dick Grove School of Music. He was a very successful arranger and, and composer and jazz pianist. And he had started his school and he had gotten all these heavies on the faculty. I mean, Henry Mancini was teaching composing and film scoring and Victor Feldman and Louis Conte were teaching percussion and Steve Lukather from Toto was teaching guitar. And for not a ton of money, you could go there and you could really, I mean, I did like 18 courses in 12 months to graduate in composition. And I was illiterate when I got there musically. And when I came out, I actually knew what I was doing. I mean, I, I knew jazz harmony, I knew chord substitutions. Um, and um, 
actually and had studied lyric writing with Jack Smalley and you know some other people and it really helped um, but a lot of what they're also teaching me was about the business right and um, but that's where we made our connections was at the, because a lot of those Grove kids went on they were all 10 years younger than me uh, but they all went on a lot of them went on to do some pretty amazing things and um who were some of your classmates? The one that comes to mind first was a guy from Montreal named Claude Gadette. He was conservatory trained. I think he had a degree in classical organ. He could do anything with the keyboard. He was a complete virtuoso. He was Celine Dion's keyboard player mm. uh, in the early days. He came to LA and um, he was there. And um, I started writing with him a little bit after uh, we graduated. And he was. Um, already like a double scale first call session player in LA. And um, he was just starting to get his big break. Uh, he was gonna be uh, co-producing Natalie Cole's next album at a time when that really mattered. And um, at 37, he died of a heart attack. About two weeks before he was supposed to play the song we had just written for Natalie Cole. Mm. <laughs> um, but it was a tremendous loss. Um, you know, he he was um, just so brilliantly talented. David Foster had kind of taken him under his wing and they were working together. And I always th thought of him as sort of, uh, he might be the next David Foster. Um, so, you know, he was one and there were several others in the jazz arena. Um, but um, it was a real special place. And if it hadn't, and that's, you know, that's a lot of the people we would end up writing with or the people that went to school there school was around for about 20 years until dick died um but um a lot of the alumni still stay in touch from time to time when you moved to la were you still working did you keep your job or did you go full force into school well what i did was um you know i have a really amazing wife who was beyond understanding because she thought she was marrying this overly mobile advertising executive um, and a year into our marriage, I said, by the way, um, I'd really like to move to L.A., go back to school full time, study music and write songs for a living. <laughs> and, um, and she went. It was amazing. Mm. Uh, she had her own, uh, you know, really solid job and career. And she picked up and moved and got another job um, in L.A. And. Um, and yeah, I went back to school full time, but to be fair, in, in 1978, I had started my own consulting business with another guy and I held on to one client to pay the bills for 10 years. A good, a good client. Of, it was a very good client, <laughs> 41 quarters and um, you know, just enough subsistence. You know, I was probably doing 20 hours a week with them. Um, at the most, the rest of the time was all music. I mean, like all music. I would wake up in the morning with the black keys on my forehead because I had fallen asleep mm. in the studio on the keyboard, you know. When you hit LA, punk rock had already, had happened. And, oh, yeah. Right. And so then, and now you had these sort of bands that were maybe, maybe four years into the punk rock thing. You had bands that were like X and the Germs and right. uh, that was dominating um la music did that interest you i was asking milo this too and he was saying it totally missed him did it do anything for you because you kind of landed right in it you know it actually didn't um 
I, I, I couldn't get into it because I was still in a time warp. Um, you know, I was used to, I, lyrics were always extremely important to me. And I know they were important, obviously, in hardcore, they're important. But a lot of times I couldn't hear them. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, right. and, you know, I was so used to kind of hearing this more acoustic and, and sort of, you know, Laurel Canyon backing for vocals that um, I paid a lot of attention to lyrics. And hardcore frustrated me endlessly because it was just too noisy for me. Uh, I knew they had, a, I knew they were, they were making a point, um, but I never got into it. And, um, you know, I got, kind of felt like um, I probably need to understand it better than I did. Um, you know, it's, um, I was still, uh, I mean, what changed, 1981 changed everything for songwriters for two reasons, my perspective. First, there was MTV. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, this thing, MTV in 1981, where lyrics became a lot less important, presentation and how you look and danceability and other things. Um, you know, hooks were very important, but lyrics, not so much. Um, and often, you know, when writers who were above my station at the time in my early days in LA would ask me to write with them, it would be because of lyrics, not because I was a great melodist. I wrote a lot of my own melodies, but, you know, that wasn't why I got asked to collaborate. Um, so MTV happened, and then something called the Jupiter 8 happened. But, you know, Roland made this synthesizer that has captured the imagination of a lot of musicians and studio people. And that was in 81. And by 1982, 83, um, it was everywhere. And, you know, the charts were topped by Olivia Newton-John wanting to get physical. And, um, and then Thriller comes out with the Jupiter 8 and Beat It and Billie Jean and, you know, and bass guitar almost disappears because it's all left-hand keyboard at that wow. point. And it's now now it's synth pop. So what is a guy cloaked in the 70s supposed to do who's yearning for, you know, Jackson Brown's introspection, um, Paul Simon's poetry, and, you know, James Taylor's nuanced guitar licks, sort of like, um, gosh, I guess I was, you know, born too late. Had to adapt, right? Because at that point, if you're going to try to make a living as a songwriter, you're going to write what the market wants, or else you're going to, you know, die in obscurity. Happy, maybe, but um, you know, I mean, I was writing pieces for jazz quintet, uh, but I certainly was. I was rarely pitching them, maybe to a jazz label once in a while. Mm. Um, but the 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 real deal was got to write song, danceable songs for you know fourteen year old girls is what they were really looking for, and I didn't want to do that. So I tried to write songs for. 20 year olds <laughs> instead of 14 year olds um, but i'm already in my 30s at that point right uh, so as a lyricist that becomes a little tricky um, but you know it was still exciting and i loved being in the studio and la at that time well it probably it may still be this way it's like you know for 25 bucks not 25 bucks anymore but you'll get the metaphor for 25 bucks you could get virtuoso players to come in to make a demo um the real expense was in the studio time because we were you know 
some some of us were slow but um but you know it was just um to, to be in that world where all this talent was around you and you could pick and choose and you could you know put your dream band together and go into the studio and uh, the flip side of that is up until the 80s you could probably until the at least until the mid 70s you could walk into an anr office with a guitar or sit down at a piano like in the brill building days you know and play a song and if it was a great song they could hear it now you've got to make a record you know, not just a simple recording, but you've got to make a record. It's like, you know, hey, man, there ain't no strings on this tape. Uh, what's up? You know, because suddenly horn, strings, synthesizers, bells, whistles, sound effects. You know, for those of us who were into essence, um, you know, it was just endlessly frustrating because you have these A&R guys who, um, you know, we're fresh out of the mail room and couldn't tell the difference between a great song and a great track. And they were much more interested in a great track. And I wasn't, not, I didn't have a lot of production chops. I mean, I ended up getting some and, you know, doing a lot of demos in my own home studio that were more than passable, but didn't come easy to me. And in the meantime, um, there was very little emphasis on song quality at that point. It was really much, much more about we as a record company or as an artist or as a producer, we don't really want to have to do any work. We want to hear the arrangement. We want to hear the instrumentation. We want to hear, you know, we want to hear the record so we can go duplicate it quickly um, right. you know, with some even bigger name musicians and get it out. And, um, you know, in, in $1980, you know, spending 1500 bucks on a demo was real money. Yeah, that's a lot. And that's what it took, you know, to be competitive at that point. And you were making so, demos so other people, artists could hear them and then want to cut those songs. Exactly. And, you know, and trying to put words in other people's mouths was a new thing uh, for yeah. me. And, you know, and just so people, under, I'm sure people understand this, maybe some listeners don't, but someone like, who I love, uh, Patty Griffin is a good example of someone who yeah. put out four or five albums on A&M that didn't sell at all, though they were brilliant. And then she wrote a song that the Dixie Chicks covered and her whole life completely changed. Um, and and good for her, by the way, because she's oh, yeah. a jam. But there, and there's a lot of stories like that. Um, she's just the first name that comes to mind. So my own Jewish parents, Stephen, will have me in my brain asking you, so did you make any money? Did you, did you, did yeah, you actually, okay? Um, well, I was in LA for seven years um, and I made real money for two of them. Okay. Um, and not so much the others. I mean, the truth is, you know, it gets exponential at the top. I mean, I had a single with Starship that I think peaked at 25 in the top 100. And if it had gone to 10 or 15, it would have probably been two or three times as much money. And if it had gone top five, it would have probably been five. But it was still a lot of money at the time. Not too shabby. What song was that? Tomorrow Doesn't Matter Tonight. It was the third that, single on the Knee Deep in the Hoopla album. Which is a big record. It was a big record. And um, and um, so, yeah, there, but I probably, if I'm totally honest, as I have tried to be with my wife about this, probably spend as much money in seven years on demos, <laughs> almost, wow. almost. 
um, as, as we made on that record. So does a moment like that make you think, uh, let's, let's put it in acting terms. Like if you're an yeah. actor and you're in LA and you're trying to get in, and then you manage to land a part on, let's just use the 80s as an example, on Dallas, right? Yep. Maybe you're sure. not a series regular, but maybe you have a three episode arc and you get paid some money and people start recognizing you and you think like, okay, this is, now I, now I feel I'm in. Now I got some momentum. Did you feel that way? Or did you feel like, did, in other words, did it encourage you to keep, to keep going? Or did you think like, or, or the other, or the other, outcome in the sense of like it's too much to come so close what did the starship thing do for you uh, emotionally and in terms of thinking about this as a as a vocation well it did two things uh, the first thing it did is the first thing you said yes it encouraged me the first two singles off the starship album were number one singles massive um i didn't like those songs by the way we built this city and sarah i thought you know Okay, I mean, I'm still a Jefferson Airplane fan at that point, and Starship has become this other thing. Um, but I had respect for Grace, and I thought Mickey Thomas was just an amazing singer ever since Fooled Around and Fell in Love with Elvin Bishop. And um, I thought, hey, boy, they're going to cut this song. I don't know who's going to sing it, because I actually demoed it female, and I thought Grace would sing it. Um, Mickey ended up singing it in her key, <laughs> which was, wow. you know, kind of remarkable um, and did a nice job on it. But um, but yeah, I'm thinking I'm I have to admit, I mean, there was this commercial side of me, too. And I thought I'm kind of already counting my money at that point Two number one singles. Um, and uh, I need to digress for a moment before I give you the punchline on what happened with all that, because. I said two things happened when the Starship thing happened, and, and the first was the encouragement. Um, but it was also this other thing. It was a little bit of a requiem for a little bit of poetic justice, I thought, for what had happened with me with Harry Belafonte a few years before that, because um, that should have been a monster album. And circumstances, you know, exogenous events. You never know what's going to happen with the record. Um, the fact is, um, I wrote that song, the title cut on his album, Love Me Is Where I Belong, I wrote it alone, and it was his 25th anniversary album since 1956's Calypso, which was the first album to ever sell a million copies in history, and, you know, if, I didn't know as much about him as a young guy at the time, but then I, you know, get into the library and looking at the microfiches and see him all over the cover of Time magazine and with Martin Luther King. And I finally, you know, got the whole picture. And I thought, and there was a, you know, there was a big crooner at the time, Johnny Mathis, who had just done his 25th anniversary album on Columbia, same label, that just sold jillions of copies. And I thought, wow, I, I'm, this is my first major cover by an artist, and this is big. Is this really going to happen? So at this point, Harry hasn't recorded in like four years because of some kerfuffle with RCA Records, and now he's on Columbia, and he's making this album. And um, wherever he went, he got massive coverage on, on this, you know, Loving You is Where I Belong tour. And he would take those opportunities 
you know, he was an amazing figure as a humanitarian and an activist. And he would take those opportunities of the media coverage to, you know, get pretty aggressive on social justice and you know, other issues. And he really took on CBS, the parent company of Columbia, mm. for not doing more uh, to, to, you know, build facilities in, in less developed economies, maybe, and some other things that they could be doing. And I really don't remember the details, but whatever it was, um, I think he just may have pissed them off enough that uh, six weeks after they released the album, they recalled it worldwide. And the tour still happened, um, but that album is, you know, it's virtual. I mean, it's out of print. You can still find it. But and and then, you know, here I am on this album with arguably one of the biggest stars in history. Sandwiched in between covers of Bob Dylan, Hoyt Axton, and Ralph McTell. And I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe this is really going to happen. That was before I moved to LA. Mm. So, and that's probably one reason I moved to LA. Uh, so, you know, uh, that was a great disappointment, obviously. And um, it would be another four years before Starship. So that's why there was kind of a dual set of conflicting emotions around all of that. But overall, it was pretty net positive, you know? Yeah, because I think that sometimes people will think will say things like to use the acting example, like I'm, you know, I'm I'm gonna leave the industry. I've been in LA trying to act for seven years, nothing's happened. Then you get this bite. Um, and then it and then 10 years later, you know, it gives you 10 more years. It like almost like reboots you and refreshes you. Um, and so the Starship thing was a fairly sizable bite. You're on, arguably, it was one of the biggest albums of 19, what is it, 82? 85. Is that 85? 85, 86, yeah. Yeah, I mean, We Built the City and Sarah were both Titanic um, singles. And and that album, in, you know, Knee Deep in the Hoople was huge. So at that point, you must have thought, okay, well, this is like my, the second chance that on the Belafonte promise, right? That should have been huge. Right. Well, there is a coda to this story oh. because with the Starship, um, the song hits the charts around seventy with a bullet. Uh, okay. The same time, the same time that Culture Club hits at seventy-one with a bullet, and we're watching these two songs, you know, go up the charts each week. Now they're in the twenties, and when it hits twenty-six, it loses its bullet. And so I get on the phone, I put on my business hat, I get on the phone with RCA Records and say, so um, what's, up, what's up with this? And they were very transparent with me. They said, well, the album's already made its numbers. It's done far better than we expected. So we pulled the promotion on your single. And I later found out why they did that, which only took a little bit of this thing out of it. but. The last part of the story is Rewind. There was a studio in North Hollywood called King Sound. Every songwriter's favorite studio, Eddie King, was a brilliant engineer, wonderful to work with. And I was doing a session there one day, and I arrived one evening. I arrived just as the previous session was finishing, and I just... There was a guy in the booth with him. They were listening back to what they had recorded. And it was some of the most brilliant piano playing I'd ever heard. And the song was great. And as they're leaving, as he's as we're transitioning, 
and they're leaving the studio, Eddie introduces me to this guy who had just recorded the song. His name was Bruce Hornsby. Really, we talked briefly. He was a very nice guy, very humble, you know, brilliant guy on the on music group. Anyway, a few weeks later, I found out that um, RCA took my budget, said, we've made our numbers on the Starship album, but we've got this great new artist named Bruce Hornsby. We're going to move your money over there and promote the way it is. Um, and that's what they did. And I, I had such mixed feelings about it because like it couldn't happen to a nicer, more talented guy than Bruce Hornsby. Um, but at that point, as a final indoctrination to the real music business, um, Robin Randall and I, my co-writer on the song, went to see an independent promotion guy like in the old days where, you know, they do pay to play and whatever they do, it's a mystery to me. And asked him, if, is there anything we can do to retain you? Because we don't really know how this works. Um, you know, and he said, if you'd have come to me a week sooner, I could have helped you. But you're too late. Too late so, because, because it just it had lost its momentum. It lost its momentum and the pay to play thing, you know, which Nirvana was in the middle of writing a song about. <laughs> was, uh, you know, was was not was the timing was everything. And, um, you know, yeah. so it, it was what it was. I, I think the song was top five in Alaska. That was probably the only, hey. the only place, you know. You know what? That's not too shabby. The um, the weird thing is, is that you think like RCA Records is a huge company with, you would think, a ton of money. And so it's weird to hear them say, well, we took the Starship money and moved it over here. It's like, well, that's not the only money you have. Like, they must have had. I mean, what was that? You know, that was, a, I'm sure that was a party line. They, you know. Yeah. They, they didn't want to say, we just decided to give up on the record because, you know. But it had, if you remember, the 80s was really the, the kind of the fulcrum of the corporatization of the record business in terms of, you know, by the end of the 80s, six of the, the six, four of the six largest record companies weren't even based in the United States. There was so many, so much consolidation and acquisition and merger and all of that. And the point of that is, I mean, by, by the bean counters by then were such in full control mm -hmm. that um, it was almost plausible to me, coming from the corporate world myself, it was almost plausible to me that they would say, okay, well, uh, we were hoping to do 2 million units on this record, and that's what we built into our financial forecasts and our P&L. And guess what? We're there. Uh, so what's next? So and, it's not as though they didn't have the money. It's that they'd only allocated this much, and they weren't going to deviate from the plan. That's right. It's all, right? It's just fiscal, it's just fiscal um, template that you're working from. We don't move stuff from over here to help this. It's like, this has all been allocated and this has all been cordoned off for certain projects. Yeah. I guess I, I think understand that's right. that. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, one thing I want to be clear about is um, it's easy for this whole discussion to sound like, you know, sour grapes, what was me. Um, everybody in the business has stories like this, mm -hmm. you know, um, I mean, if they got to any sort of a level where there were real transactions and, you know, this kind of tension between commercial and artistic and, you know, everything we talked about. Well, I mean, every songwriter had it. You know, if you arrived in L.A. in 1982 with any edginess at all, 
and were required to write radio hits for teenagers, all of that edginess will be filed off in the space of a year or two because you're spending your days just saying, okay, I'm having fun doing this. It's really fun. It's not, it's nothing I would ever sing myself. Mm. Um, but it's not, um, you're not going to explore, um, you know, the edges of humanity uh, uh, when you're, when you're, you know, what I we used to think of at the time as a craft writer. And I kind of, I don't like the term that much, but I had to say, I mean, I wrote with a few artists that were artists and I was very clear, I am not an artist. I'm kind of trying to become one now a little bit late, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, but I was not an artist. I was all about craft. I was all about, um, and I'm, and you know, it's almost hard to admit how formulaic it was, but if you go into an A&R office or a publisher's office dozens and dozens of times and you hear, you know, your intro can't be more than four measures. And if you don't get to the chorus, you know, by 40 seconds, forget it. And, you know, the chorus sounds like a setup. It doesn't really sound like a chorus. And over and over and over, and after a while you find yourself saying, hmm, call it selling out if you want, but if you want to make a living doing this and you're trying to write radio hits because it's the only way to make a living if you're not an artist, then you end up conforming. And that doesn't mean you can't have a great time doing it. And it doesn't mean there isn't a lot of creativity involved. It just means it isn't the creativity that you otherwise would have with an open field when you can write whatever you want. Stranger pounding on my door Says we've met before I might have seen you somewhere But I really can't be sure Looks like you've been bruised Possibly abused I just can't let you in the door But hold on, hold on I remember now You're just so different somehow You used to be America I hardly recognize you You used to be so beautiful Before we all were lied to Shockwaves everywhere Hold tight Feels like I'm the stranger now In my own Country somehow You used to be America I hardly recognized you You used to be so beautiful Before we all were lied to now it's hard to look at you, knowing where you've been, but glad I let you in so we can talk again. Hold on, 
recognize you You used to be so beautiful before we all were lied to Now it's hard to look at you Knowing where you've been But now you're here my friend And there is hope again There is hope again So then post-Starship, when that record was was done um, and you'd had that sort of, you know, you were so close, then what happened? Well, that was a pretty prolific period, 86, 87. Um, but I, I just have to tell you, um, I had insisted on being my own publisher. Mm. I was always self-published. I never gave any copyrights away to this day. I never that sounds gave smart. any publishing. It is smart up to a point. And the point of diminishing returns is uh, you have to remember that 100% of nothing is nothing. And, you know, one of the things that would happen is, um, you know, it was a time when with the corporatization of the industry, individuals got very greedy. Producers wanted to put their name on songs, even though they didn't help write them. Um, and if they were big enough, they could. Um, and particularly what was really happening at the time in 86, 87 is in the early 80s, the, um, the big labels and big publishing companies had really beefed up their staff writing. And so Warner Brothers would have, you know, 20 or 30 staff writers that they were paying these advances on royalties. And the only way they'd ever get that money back was putting their mediocre songs on albums as fillers. Mm. And so... That really squeezed out the opportunity in the second half of the 80s for a lot of us, because what would happen is over and over again, oh, this song is fantastic. We want to, they would, there were two terms then. We're going to put a hold on it, or we want to put a freeze on it. And if they want to put a freeze on it, they might even pay you to not play the song for anybody for the next six months because our artist is just going into the studio now and they'll be working on the album all year. And they may cut it, they may not, but we don't want anybody else to hear it. Um, but more common, they were too cheap. They would just say, if we want to hold it, please don't play it for anybody. And of course, we'd still be able to play it for people. But uh, the point of the story is that with staff writers, they would say, cost them nothing to say, we're going to hold this. Um, I had a song that I wrote with Claude Gaudet on hold with Barbara Streisand for 15 months. Um, and... Um, event but what would happen in all these situations is at the end when they would tell you you know we're almost finished with the record we've got a couple of more to do uh we're probably going to cut 15 sides and only release 10 or 11. um but in the meantime oh they get a call from you know the staff writing department or the cfo or whoever it is saying you know you know we're down 300 grand on staff writer advances this year Here's some stuff, find an album for these. And as long as that album had, um, as long as, um, as long as that album had, um, you know, a couple of hit singles on it, they didn't really care what the fillers were. So it just became difficult that way. And, um, you know, I honestly did not have another significant cut for Three years, uh, two and a half years after that, because none of those holds, you know, actually materialized into, you know, major label releases. There were a couple of, you know, there were a couple of minor ones, 
Um, there were all kinds of weird things like Paul Revere and the Raiders did a, um, a um, reunion album. And uh, I co-wrote title cut on that. And then they got into a, a, a contract dispute with uh, Rhino and uh, album was shelved, never came out. Good God. So, so the only reason I'm sharing these stories is for people who are listening who are younger, um, it's important to know that this happens all the time and that that's kind of what you're signing up for. And I, I don't know if I would have done anything differently if I knew I was signing up for that. I don't think anything could have stopped me at, at, at 32 to say I'm tired of being illiterate in music and I'm going to go back to school and fix it. Um, but as far as what the, the real business is, um, you know, the business has always been a tough business. It's a tough business now for a lot of different reasons that have to do with technology and, you know, everything else and streaming. But, um, you know, even then, songwriters were at the bottom of the food chain. We had no union. Um, ASCAP and BMI, you know, great organizations. They do what they can, uh, but they're really only on the performance side, you know, not mechanical royalties and uh, what what happened to, you know, the music business on that side. So you just have to know what you're signing up for. And I have to just say, you know, if I had to do it over again, of course I would do it. Those seven years were totally magical. I mean, to the point where if I, I, I recently uh, put a music website together and I was listening to some of the old demos. When I hear those demos, I can almost tell you 40 years ago what the people were wearing in the studio. Wow. I mean, the memories are so vivid because the entire brain was absorbed. Every, it seemed like, you know, every synapse was firing um, and really creating some indelible marks. And that only happens when there's joy or tragedy. And it was not tragedy. <laughs> so I, I think um, it was absolutely worth it. And I said, you know, in my last book, which came out uh, several months ago, I talked about the fact that there's just no question that music informed my business uh, capabilities and problem solving um, and how to present information. You know, I talked in the book about the fact that I used to have, I had these uh, junior executives reporting to me in one of my corporate jobs that I'd ask them to uh, draft a slide deck to present to the CEO on some initiative that they'd want to do and kind of make the business case for it. And they'd give me 38 slides, um, you know, when this guy's only going to have 15 minutes. And I'd have to talk to them about, you know, we don't, they'd come back and say, well, I edited it. Now it's only 25 slides and there's nothing else to cut. And that's when I would have to invoke. How many words are in a song? 150, 100, maybe? You've got to do character development. You've got to do plot. You've got to do climax. You know, you've got to do all of those things in 150 words. And you're telling me you need 25 slides to present a concept? So there's always been this cross-fertilization between, you know, music and other things. And um, so, yeah, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't change a thing other than some of the hard knocks. And, um, and the way it ended was a little bit dark. What did finally make you stop and how, how dark did it get? 
what really made me stop was there were some personal considerations. Uh, we wanted to start a family, and I kept <laughs> I kept telling my wife um, after the next hit back, you know, we'll be more financially secure, and I'll feel better about all that, and I'll be I'll be able to be home more, <laughs> you know, all of that. But the years were grinding on, and you know, in 19, I have to confess, in 1989, I was 39 years old, um, and it was time. So um, the catalyst for this was I wrote a song with uh, the bass player for the Little River Band, which uh, you know was a big act at the time out of Australia. They had top five single with reminiscing and had, you know, were huge in Australia and around the world. And they were actually a great band. I, I yeah. liked them. Um, great vocal harmonies, some of the best harmonies I'd heard since Crosby, Stills, Nash and & Young. And um, uh, a guy that I'd been writing with uh, knew the bass player in the band. Um, they were working on some music together. They had no lyrics. They brought it to me and asked me if I'd write lyrics for it. And I did. Um, and I wasn't writing it as a single. They kind of had their singles, we thought at that point. Um, I wrote it about the Iran-Contra affair, uh, which was happening right then, you know, in 1986-87. If you remember that big sure. scandal, you know, Reagan had clandestinely approved sending arms to Iran, uh, where there was an arms embargo, where you're not supposed to be sending arms to Iran. And the reason he did it is he was trying to raise money to fund the overthrow of the Sandinista government in Nicaragua, and he couldn't get Congress to appropriate money for that, so he needed some non-appropriated money. And he thought, well, if I send these bombs and missiles and everything to Iran, um, maybe we can not only raise the money to overthrow the Nicaraguan government, but we could also um, get our seven hostages out of Lebanon or wherever Hezbollah was holding them. And I just thought, oh, okay, it's come to this. Um, you know, the shades of Watergate. Um, I got to write a song about this. I don't know if the band will go for it. Um, and so we wrote this song called Inside Story. And um, so John Boylan, the producer, heard it, he loved it. Um, Wayne had come up with this monster bass riff. It was just amazing. I mean, how often is a bass riff the hook in a pop song? Um, but it was just totally captivating. And I loved writing it too. Um, so I don't think much more about it. They go down to Sydney to make their record and they're down there for months, you know, working on this album. And there are three writers on this song because Wayne and our mutual friend and me. And in those days, we didn't say, well, I wrote the lyrics, so I get 50% of the song. You know, everything was pretty, especially among friends. It was, I, it was always, I never did a song that was in equal splits, whether I wrote 80% of it or wrote 30% of it. Uh, usually it was more than half, but it didn't matter. It really didn't matter to me, as long as it was a great song and we had fun doing it. So several months later, I get a letter from MCA Records. And it says, um, this is regarding the song Inside Story. The band has changed some lyrics. They wanted to make it not so specific. It ended up being about how the news sensationalizes everything. And it turned out to be kind of a hit on the media, um, which was in many cases deserved, but not in all cases. I wasn't really, you know, that happy with how that turned out. But the point is, 
the letter says, there are now six writers on the song. But here's the punchline. See, I'm already thinking six writers. I don't have even 33% of the song now. I have 18% of the song. The letter says, you now have 5% of the song. So I had to sue them. <laughs> and, and, and I really don't think it was the band, you know, malicious uh, intent. I think it was the label because, you know, they get a big cut of anything a little river band does, publishing anything, right? So that's what happened. We ended up settling out of court. I think I ended up, you know, 12% or eight. I mean, it was kind of a joke. And my wife, who had been very, very, way too patient up to this point, we're ready to start a family. She had even been pitching some, I mean, she had her own career. And on the side, she was even pitching some songs for me and some of my writer friends that she that she uh, liked their material. But that was like the last straw, you know. And we said, we're not sure we want to really raise a kid in L.A. at the time. There was a lot of gang activity and, you know, and so... We moved back to San Francisco. And um, I was very fortunate to talk my way into a job with a music related startup in Silicon Valley. And, um, you know, that was that. Little River Band album came out, the, album, the Monsoon album, um, did well in Australia. Uh, the single was Love is a Bridge. Um, Inside Story was the B side, uh, but it never really got traction beyond the AOR charts in the US. The um the music startup that you that you talked your way into, what was that one? I don't know if you'd remember this, but there was a company called Personics. And what Personics did um, in the late 80s, they had developed some technology. It was like a very, very sophisticated jukebox that would basically make custom CDs. We were all used to making mixtapes, right? But this would actually make custom CDs on demand and we built these machines and we put them in Tower Record and Musicland and all the major record chains. Um, and you could come in and create, um, I didn't, I'm sorry, I didn't mean custom CDs. Custom, it was CD technology. That's why the audio quality was so good. But it was custom cassettes, basically, because cassettes were still the thing. So um, it, it was really great. People loved it because they didn't want to buy all those mediocre staff writer songs on albums at that point. <laughs> you know, uh, They could pick and choose and make mixtapes for gifts and make mixtapes for themselves. And the label would print out on a laser printer. And it was pretty cool. And um, senior executives from Electra and Warner were on our board. Um, it was funded by the, you know, some big VCs, the Bass Brothers in Dallas, and you know some heavy others. And it was a pretty high-profile Redwood City startup in the Valley. Um, I think I was their thirtieth employee or something. Um, and for so for two years, we you know built a team and uh, we got it into thirteen major markets: New York, LA, so on. And we had people lined up around the block at our records in Greenwich Village and other places just to make a tape. And it scared the hell out of the record companies. Oh, we're never going to sell albums anymore. They're on to us. We're putting out all this mediocre crap in between the single. Um, we think we better cut off their music supply. So 
what happened was uh, at the time I got audits and surveys, which is one of the most reputable market research firms in the world to do a study to show that in fact, we were helping to sell records because people would make these tapes and we'd come home and it would do what singles have done for years. Singles were always lost leaders, 45s, you know. Um, I want to hear more of this artist. And then they buy the album. But, but, but by the time that study was completed, which took several months, and we made the presentation, these guys had pretty much already made up their mind. So Warner, which was kind of the, one of the key operatives there, said, well, we have a need. We get a lot of requests for out-of-print um, albums. So we're going to buy this technology and we're going to use it. Um, for like a record club that you know fulfills on demand out of print requests, and so they did. Um, they put us out of business. That that was that. I'm surprised if you if you think about that and how nervous they got. It's amazing to think that Spotify exists, right? It's true. Yeah. Well, I think Spotify was such a relief after Napster. <laughs> right, right, right. It's, it's like, all relative, right? Yeah, I mean, Napster completely destroyed the industry and they had to figure out how to put it back together again. And they did, um, but it's a totally different beast. But if you look at YouTube and you think about Spotify or any kind of streaming service, um, which really isn't artist friendly, ultimately, right? I mean, it's not. It's yeah. amazing to think the paranoia they had over Personics and then to think about how, you know, literally that that became such a massive um uncontrollable digital monster that just completely upended record companies and they couldn't do a thing about that which is really interesting it is so yeah and and the thing is um i actually loved my job in that company as vp of marketing because we were paying writers we weren't trying to do the napster thing right. you know it was really the first legal you know distribution um, you know, of individual songs um, in a dig from a digital technology where people got paid. Imagine that. So, so you, so, you yeah. were basically uh, effectively um, out of the game, but I imagine you were probably still writing songs at home. I, I can't imagine that you could turn that off. I did. I turned it off. You did? I did. I got into this space that said, um, you know, I was making a, making a good, a really decent living before music. Um, and I started making a decent living again after music. And I thought, you know what? This was great. I had my chance. Um, I did okay. Wasn't a total failure. Um, and, um, but it kind of kept me from making a living for four or five out of those seven years. Mm. And I'm going to have a kid now. And in fact, at Personics, we had a kid. And um, everything changed for me. Then it was all about security, given where I came from. Um, and so I thought um, the last time I let my guitar out of the closet, it kept me from making a living for four or five years. I'm not going to do that again. <laughs> so I literally put it away for 10 years. And then. Um, I had a business trip to Lexington, Kentucky one day, um, working with a client there that was you know, one of IBM. And I had a very good friend in Nashville uh, <clears throat> named Steve Nelson, who 
if you've never heard of him, you should. He's a brilliant writer. He's written, talk about a guy with range. He's written everything from the Winnie the Pooh theme song to the title cut of Barbara Streisand's Songbird album uh, to legends like Dusty Springfield and Paul Anka. And he's just a fabulous writer and now an artist. He's got four or five albums out. And <clears throat> he was actually one of the instructors at the Grove School. And one day I actually had the balls to ask him if he would ever consider writing a song with me. And he ended up being like a brother to me. And we wrote one of my most favorite songs that I've ever written. Um, so the point of the story is by this time, Steve had moved from LA to Nashville and I hadn't seen him in a while. And so on this business trip to Lexington, I thought, you know, it's only what an X hour drive from Lexington to Nashville. I'm going to go down and see Steve. Uh, and I had just written my first song in 10 years, I think. And he had built a very nice home studio and he made me record it while I was there. And it came out really nice. It was just an acoustic guitar and three-part harmonies. Um, and I kind of got the bug again, but I didn't do much about it. I, I, I would occasionally write a song, you know, once in a great while. I've never been that prolific anyway. And um, around 2002, 2003, I kind of got into some country stuff for a while and, you know, Georgia roots and all that. And um, I would go to Nashville and, um, you know, make some demos there. But I was always an out of towner there, you know. <laughs> I still remember I was recording in Larry Baird's studio. He's Tim McGraw's guitar player in the band. And um, I had the reason people love to record at Larry's is because he gets these guys between tours. And so, you know, you can get Dan Dugmore on pedal steel. You can get Eddie Bears on drums. I mean, you know, it's like driving a Porsche, right? When you're trying to produce these guys and you get them for an hour. And they could cut a whole album in an hour, mm -hmm. you know, because of who they are. And so I would get the, you know, the, the, the dream bands together. But I still remember Larry didn't even know he was predicting this. But I did a reference. I was doing a reference vocal. And I asked Dan Dugmore to do something different on pedal steel. And he was a real gentleman about it. I mean, why? how could I ask Dan Dugmore to do anything different? Um, and Larry said, humor the guy this is an out-of-town tune i thought it was a country tune <laughs> but it was an out-of-town tune huh. and so that was kind of a reminder to me don't spend a lot more time pitching tunes in nashville i'd already made when i was younger i'd already made my trips to music grow i mean when i was when i was a 25 year old way before i was ready you know in the, in the advertising business every time i had a business trip to new york or l.a you know, I was scattering tapes at parties or whatever. Yeah. Um, and in fact, that's probably how I got the Belafonte cut. Um, so it's just one of those things where, um, you know, I loved being able to make those demos in Nashville, but it didn't get me back into pitching very much. By that time, pitching, if you didn't have a publisher or a good song plugger at that point. So it's back to that thing we talked about earlier. You just have to decide. You have to know 100% of nothing is nothing. And, you know, if you have some moral quibbles with, um, you know, somebody owning your copyrights and owning your babies, um, it's a very personal decision. 
and I'll never be sure it was the right one. I could probably be had today <laughs> in a way that <laughs> well, I. Well, <laughs> when you see people like Bruce Springsteen or, um, you know, uh, Buckingham Knicks selling their catalog. Oh yeah, um, yeah, all of Dylan. We're talking about massive amounts of money. In your brain, do you go ah, or do you under, or do you get it? Um, I get it. Um, you know, they have plenty to leave to their heirs. Right. Um, there's one part of it I don't get, and it's the part that says, if um, if Sony wants to now use that music for um, a Republican presidential campaign, too bad, Bob. <laughs> um, yeah. You know. Yeah. And and I actually had a uh, actually turned down a deal about seven or eight years ago to use one of my songs for political purposes that were just totally out of alignment with whoever the hell I am. And yeah, so that's a, that to me is the sticking point. Um, you just once you let them go, the genie's out of the bottle. You never know what's going to happen with them, and some really great things can happen. Yeah, I didn't know that because I think a guy like Springsteen or Dylan who sold their cattle, I think Paul Simon did too, didn't he? Or did he remember? Yes, he did. He, he absolutely did. did. I mean, I would hate it if I, you know, if, if uh, you know, some kind of political person who was running who was not in line with me at all, uh, and I'm Bob Dylan or Paul Simon, and that's on the campaign show, I'd be like, yeesh. Um, but I guess it's so much money, you, you're willing to, to, to roll the dice and think that won't happen. Well, I can't know that they didn't negotiate some provisions okay. in there okay. that, you know, that it put some shackles on what could be done. Um, what, in terms of now, um, you're, do you, you were saying you're not, you haven't been that prolific. Are, do you find that now um, that you're more prolific than you've been? Is it, does it feel like a kind of rebirth or a reclaiming of of the songwriting i know the word craft and it was always sort of frowned upon but um mm -hmm. but in terms of songwriting as a as a thing that you're doing um how does it feel now how productive are you and what is your what is your plan those are three big questions <laughs> well yeah they are um it feels really good um i actually don't feel as much like I'm reclaiming as I am for the first time finding my voice. Because when you've been writing for other people for this long, um, your voice really does get sublimated to obscurity. And so there's been some rediscovery in that. And, you know, I suppose that's why most of what I've written the last few years has been social commentary, because that's what's been on my mind and I can never sell it. All right. Um, um, but I still have the same frustration as I've always been slow as a writer. You know, it's rare. I think I've only ever had one song come to me in a half an hour, you know, like you hear all these guys talking about. And sometimes they're not telling the truth anyway. But uh the, the point being um i'm very very slow and i'm still very hard on myself so uh, a lot of songs that could have probably been pretty good songs will never see the light of day because it's just like just something about them that's not lighting me on fire you know mm. so um i think there's been less focus on the writing this past couple of years because i never performed since college bands until a few years ago and then I started performing solo. 
And it's really required more than I expected to kind of get the chops to a point where I can do a two-hour solo show and without a break and um, and really feel confident and enjoy myself, you know. Um, and it's been such a joyful experience that it kind of took a little bit off of writing because let's play, let's face it, I've been playing very small venues where like this summer, I'm all my venues are outdoors because we're still like doing COVID avoidant stuff. And, um, you know, when you're playing an art festival or something, people want to hear songs that they already love. Mm-hmm. They don't want to kind of, it's very different than when they come to a venue to hear music and that's why they're there and they might want to hear something new. And so, you know, it's it's a kind of thing where if I'm playing a coffee house, uh, I can do original material, I intersperse it, or I can do all original material. But if I'm playing, you know, outdoor at the summer thing, when something else is going on there, um, it's going to be a lot of my heroes. You know, it's going to be Richard Thompson and Paul Simon and Neil Young and, you know, people that are really the Beatles, you know, p- people that have really influenced me. Because I know that I don't have to get them to like those songs. Mm-hmm. I just need to get them to like my performance. And um, finally learning to play the guitar and become a female style guitar player has been, you know, a great joy and challenge. And I think it siphoned off some of my songwriting energy. So I may only write a few songs a year. Um, and um, I don't know how soon that's going to change. Um, I'm not recording now because the emphasis has been more on really becoming a musician for the first time and um i just i'm leaving it open as to where that goes i'd still like to make an album uh at least one Um, but um i'm not sure i have the right combination of material to make the album i want to make yet and i think i've let also stymie me a little bit that LA was such a spoiling experience when, you know, when every waiter could outplay you and outsing you and was available cheap. And there's some fabulous musicians in the Seattle area. I can't really use that as an excuse, but I don't have that same milieu around me where, oh, it's time to go record this, make five phone calls and off we go. You know, you're reminding me of one time I was, um, I was with a friend of mine and we were on, on Telegraph Avenue in, in we were on Telegraph Avenue in Berkeley and went to Blondie's Pizza. And my friend said to me, ask the guy who's making your pizza what his PhD is in. I was like, <laughs> right? Because it's like, there's so many people. Yeah, that's right. You know? that's it, right. You're so right about that. Did you, um, you were saying your daughter was in a punk band, right? Yeah. Okay. Hysteric. Hysterics, it was called. Uh, my, did- my kid finished college at Evergreen College and I thought might go on to graduate school, but decided to do this instead. <laughs> and then got her master's, or I should say got their master because at the time that was an all woman um, hardcore band, which was pretty rare, right? I mean, it was mostly, you know, it was straight guys who were mostly making that music. Uh, yeah. And so, um, and they were on Milady Records in Olympia. And um, they actually toured either 14 or 17 countries after they did their US tour. Wow. Um, and um, so, yeah, that was, um, 
and they were heavily influenced by the Washington D.C. hardcore scene, you know, Discord Records and all of that. And uh, I think think they would say much in that mold. So, what did that do for you? Because I know that 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 punk rock was not your thing, and it was um, a different thing than you had grown up on, and were and you were talking about how important lyrics are. And did you? Did it sort of give you a kind of crash course in, oh, this is a totally new kind of music to my ear? And did you walk away with a kind of a different perspective of of the of punk rock? I, I definitely got a different perspective on it. I think um, I had underestimated it. Uh, that was clear. Um, my kid never did anything uh, without passion, and as the front person for this group. Um, and I'm working on my pronouns. He has since come out as transgender. And so when you hear me say they, it's important. It's important to do that, uh, although I still slip up from them. Um, but as the front person for that band, um, it was their lyrics. Um, they were out there, you know, really the, as the face of hysterics, uh, you know. And um, when I would read their lyrics, you know, the lyrics that I could never hear in the 80s <laughs> um, and realize this is coming from my offspring, you know, yeah, there was a certain connection to it. Um, I have admitted to them that I still could not really get into hysterics music. It was too noisy for me. I still couldn't hear the lyrics well enough. Um, and it was just too aggressive. You know, I'm a soft-spoken, pretty gentle guy. Mm. <laughs> and I just, and, you know, it's sort of the other end of the continuum from Jackson Brown, especially early, especially early Jackson Brown. Um, I, I'm not surprised that you're not wearing a Fugazi shirt right now, but I just think that at least it gave you a sense of awareness. And I like that what you said about how you, you felt maybe, hey, look, maybe I underestimated that genre. That's kind of cool. Well, I know a lot of people say this about their kids, but because they're one of the most intelligent human beings I have ever met. Those lyrics coming from them, um, I knew this was, I just, I not only underestimated the movement, I think I underestimated, you know, the people in it, which is kind of the same thing. Um, and I think there were a lot of people in it who, you know, didn't necessarily have a real message and weren't necessarily that talented. Um, but yeah, it changed it. I guess what changed it for me is that someone who was as aware and conscious and had so much conviction uh, had a way of translating that into a musical presentation. Um, I thought that was such a powerful ability that it almost didn't matter if it was punk. Mm -hmm. What mattered is that here is creativity in the raw expressing something that really needs to be expressed and heard and being done with conviction. And I thought, isn't that what art is? That's it. So that's it. So but that's how it changed my, but will I, if you look on my phone with whatever thousand songs I have on there, is there any punk on there? The answer is the only punk on there is the punk that my kid put on there. Uh, when I still had an iPod <laughs> and I transferred all the songs over. So, you know, once in a while, uh, you know, once in a while I'll be um, 
you know, listening to, you know, Richard Thompson and here comes Joy Division or, you know, whatever. And and I don't remember putting that on there. Oh, that was Steffi, who now goes by Sam. So, yeah. Anyway. Um, well, and, and also, I, I do think that if you, the through line of, like, Richard Thompson, to me, is a punk. You know, like, he, if you read those lyrics, it feels so good, I'm going to break somebody's heart tonight, is as is as edgy as anything The Clash ever wrote. Um, that's you know, a really good point. Right? Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, I actually thought it was edgy that Jackson Brown could write these days when he was 16 years old saying don't confront me with my failures i've not forgotten them um right you know ed edgy is a relative term but um but yeah, yeah you made a good point um make that record man <laughs> yeah it's uh it's simmering it's simmering, it's simmering. yeah um, it is i it's a joy to talk to you and, and it's really a really interesting perspective to to hear your story and to kind of bump it up against all the conversations I've had. Um, I've been interviewing bands since I was 15 years old and I've heard a lot of stories and, and yours is one I have not heard. And so it's really fascinating and I appreciate you sharing that. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. I've enjoyed the podcast listening to it since discovering it. Yeah, boy, if anybody wants to do regenerative AI based on all your interviews, um, that could really do something. Yeah, it's all there. It's all but there. That's a, but that's a whole other discussion, isn't it? Yes, it is. Uh, but I appreciate you spreading the word and, and thank you for the kind words. Yeah. Okay, you take care. about that that was a great conversation Stephen crystal check him out Stephen crystal c-r-i-s-t-o-l dot net find out what's going on with him tour dates music all that stuff alex green online.com is where you need to go to find out what's happening with me you can follow me on what's left of twitter at embers editor or on instagram at embers podcast or email me editor at stereo embers magazine.com don't forget to check out bombshellradio.com to find out what makes our radio station tick. And please subscribe to our podcast. Go to the podcast platform that you use and uh, hit the subscribe button. Rate and review it. Tell all your friends. We would appreciate it. Let's close the show with a longer, fuller listen to Paradise Blue by Stephen Crystal. Thank you, as always, for listening. And we'll see you next time right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. Strange are the stories I hear Of a faraway planet that's frozen in fear And where still there is hatred and war Well, I guess they've forgotten what living is for But if we could reach them, so much we could teach them From lessons we learned here on Earth If they watch
hard to imagine a place where power and prejudice threaten the race and there's terror and tears from the fight over whose god is better and whose god is right but if we could reach him i bet we could teach him how we built this beautiful world if they watch everything we do how we're all free and kind and true in paradise blue if they Stranger the stories I hear 